Star Wars is such a fixture in the pop culture firmament that it's sometimes hard to remember how challenging it was for George Lucas to make it. When I did Star Wars, I had an idea of doing this crazy 1930s serial action-adventure film, and the idea was it would be very, very fast-paced and very exciting. The problem was is there really were no special effects facilities at that time. So I was sort of forced to start my own company. Two new docuseries look back to the making of Star Wars and the founding of Industrial Light and Magic. So get ready to travel back to a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Vice TV's Icons Unearthed, Star Wars, and Disney Plus's Light and Magic serve up a wealth of interviews and behind-the-scenes materials that will dazzle and delight not just Star Wars fans, but anyone who loves movies and the creative process. Icons Unearthed boasts the first on-camera interview with Lucas's ex-wife and the Oscar-winning editor of A New Hope, Marsha Lucas. While Light and Magic was made by Lawrence Kasdan with the full support of Lucasfilm and access to its archives. Both shows take a deep dive into the Star Wars franchise and into what Lucas had to do to get his vision on the screen. I'll be speaking with Brian Volkweiss, the creator of Icons Unearthed Star Wars, as well as talking with Star Wars fans whose lives were changed on May 25, 1977, when they saw Lucas's film. But I need to take a quick break, and to lead us into that break, I have an appropriate Share Your Addiction from Comic-Con attendee Tristan R. Wren. My name is Tristan Wren. I'm from San Diego, California. And honestly, I have been obsessed with The Mandalorian for ever since it premiered. I'm in the costume right now. Uh, my helmet's right back here. And honestly, we've kind of just been preparing for uh, this for a couple of months now. You know, obviously we had to do like, you know, some last minute adjustments as well. Actually right here on the convention floor, we had to do adjustments. But honestly, Star Wars has kind of just been our main obsession for a while now. Uh, you know, ever since Disney Plus launched, ever since they got The Mandalorian, we've kind of just been, you know, absorbing the Star Wars content whenever we can. Whether it be like, you know, fan projects, or official stuff from Disney themselves. Uh, my dad's right here as well. He's in costume. He probably doesn't want to talk. <laughs> Ever since uh, I was a newborn, actually, he's gotten me into Star Wars. My first movie was actually The Phantom Menace. I don't know, like maybe like, what, six months after I was born, he was bringing me to the theaters to watch uh, The Phantom Menace. That was my first movie ever. And we've just been keeping up with the franchise ever since, collecting all the figures, collecting all the helmets, making our own stuff as well. This isn't our first... Uh, Star Wars cosplay though. We actually were as Jedi, we were Sith, and now we're Mandalorians, and we don't know what we're doing next. Maybe the most intricate costume we can get is probably like Jabba the Hutt or something. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie and a celebration of all things Star Wars. To set the right mood for this podcast, I dug into the archives. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. For one of my favorite projects, a collection of interviews I did with people who saw Star Wars on the weekend it opened in 1977 and have been fans ever since. I also speak with two people who recall seeing it in their home countries of England and India, where the film was just as popular as in the U.S. 
So close your eyes and imagine you're in a darkened cinema as Star Wars is about to be projected for the very first time. I remember the Fox fanfare. And when you're sitting in a single screen house with anywhere from 800 to 1,000 people with this massive wall-to-wall screen, it's, it's pretty heady stuff. And then the blue that said, you know, a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away, and the screen went black, and then BAM! It was like nothing you'd ever seen. And then when the first ship comes on screen and the, the theater is like doing its rumble rumble and you're like, whoa. If you were into effects and model making in particular, that first shot was just mind blowing. What blew you away right from the beginning was the Star Destroyer. Because sci-fi at that time hadn't really done a great deal of showing scale in space. How could they have possibly made you know something so large? From that first scene, I had bought into it and I was in for the ride. You, you were engulfed in it, but you were also with 1,500 other fans with you. Yeah, it was just sitting there slack-jawed and, and the, the sound, of course. You know, we'd never experienced that kind of sound before. It just changed my life. The Rebel Cruiser went by and the Imperial Cruiser went by overhead. Like, it's coming right over your head onto the screen and mouth dropped open. I can't believe I'm watching this. And then all of a sudden you see that Star Destroyer and it's coming and coming. Okay, I'm convinced this is really awesome. And all of a sudden there's this break and you're like, oh, it's finally over. No, that's just the docking bay. My jaw just progressively kept dropping and dropping. I was like, oh my God, is this thing ever gonna end? It's so big. And I sat there that whole movie just Lean forward in that seat, just staring at that drive-in screen, just listening to that little tiny crappy speaker, you know. Don't be nervous, the princess this time. Just completely enthralled with what I was seeing on the screen and completely enamored with Star Wars. It was, it was an incredible, really life-changing moment for me. So then I had Star Wars curtains, Star Wars bedding. I started collecting the Star Wars figures. You know, I had the Star Wars album. It was just my life became Star Wars. Hi there, my name's Trevor Newton. Um, I saw Star Wars in June of 1977. I was nine years old. Um, I grew up in a very small town in Oregon, and really the only option to see movies was the local drive-in. Hi, I'm Colleen Kelly Burks, and I was 21 years old when I saw Star Wars at the Valley Circle on the day before it premiered on the 25th, so I saw it on the 24th. I was totally blown away. I think the basic thing is, is a sense of community for us because we knew everybody at that line, at that theater, at any time, night or day, were fans like us. And we, we wouldn't be subject to ridicule or disparaging remarks because we're all there for the same thing. This amazing movie that brought us together and made us a fandom to be reckoned with, basically. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sean Mullen, and I was seven years old on opening day of May 25th. And then when we showed up, we were the first ones at the theater in San Diego on opening day. So around the second or third time we went to see Star Wars, we're, we're standing in the long line. So I was curious where the movie was at that was showing inside. So I went to the exit doors and I put my ear to the door and I could hear Darth Vader and Obi-Wan having the saber duel and I would tell, give my parents an update. 
Hi, I'm Julian Mushkin, and I was 11 years old when I first saw Star Wars in 1977. It was so packed already that I had to sit by myself off on the right-hand side of the aisles because we couldn't find any seats together. But once the movie started, I was just mesmerized. Uh, so my name's Gary Dexter. I uh, grew up in the United Kingdom. I was nine years old when um, what we now know as episode four, A New Hope, dropped. Uh, what was interesting about the UK is at that time we got all of our big movies at least six months later than uh, the US and so we had an additional six months plus of hype and marketing and so by the time the movie actually came out and I got to see it I was on the, the verge of exploding but it did change my life. What was funny was you know, you'd have what we now think of as nerds of which I was one and so it was normal that we would get together and talk about it but it had um, such a far-reaching impact on people and it sort of crossed into, you know, jocks and a high degree of, of young girls. And uh, it was funny because you would walk around and you'd hear people talking about it and you would think to yourself, I never thought they would be into it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Yazdi Patavala and um, I was about nine years old when I first, first watched Star Wars. It was at the Sterling Cinema in Mumbai, in India. I remember uh, just being in awe of it and I'd gone to see watch the movie with my with my family and I think when I was that age uh, at least in India you never went and watched with your friends or your neighbors you always watched with your family I got a bad feeling about this even though I was nine years old there were parts of it which were pretty scary to me like to this day I remember there's that one scene where Luke Leia Han and I think Chewie, they're all in this trash compactor. One thing's for sure, we're all gonna be a lot thinner. I was terrified. I, was, I remember thinking, oh my God, the walls are literally closing in on them. And I, you know, I remember like being physically scared of it. Like I, I put myself in their shoes and it was like the worst thing imaginable to me. Listen to them, they're dying, R2. Curse my metal body, I wasn't fast enough. It's all my fault, my poor master. We're all right! Hi, I'm Mark Tuttle. I was 12 years old when Star Wars came out in, in 1977. And I think that was the, the perfect age to see Star Wars. Even though we're dealing with lightsabers and blasters and aliens and other worlds, it looked real. And it made you think it was real because it's like, that ship is filthy. Look at the X-Wings. I mean, I mean, would you really want to fly in that? I'm Lisa Morton. I was all of 18 years old when I first saw Star Wars. I saw it on opening day at the Valley Circle Theater in San Diego. Um, and I was in kind of an interesting position because I actually had been following the production of the film for about a year before it opened. And fortunately, it more than lived up to everything I was hoping for. Hi, my name is David Glanzer, and I saw Star Wars for the first time. Uh, the weekend that opened at the Valley Circle Theater in San Diego. Uh, you know, it played in San Diego for a year, I think over a year. It was one of very few cities that did. And uh, Lucasfilm had issued a, they call it the Star Wars birthday poster. And it was, uh, you know, a, a cake with, uh, I think, one candle and uh, some of the action figures around it. And that's, you know, a prized possession of mine as well. But it was an experience that I, I can't explain because I've never been to a movie since that had people booing and hissing, clapping and, and applauding. And it was just remarkable. 
Hi, I'm Karen Schnabelt, and I was 22 years old when Star Wars came out. Uh, we went back repeatedly. I saw it 35 times that summer and eventually just lost count. Too short for a stormtrooper? Huh? Oh, the uniform. It was very hard to get good photos of various costumes from various angles. So we would actually go and watch it with a sketch pad in hand with, the, you know, and track a particular costume through the whole movie and take sketches of it. I remember there were always lines. We were always waiting in line to the point where we had our own line sitting equipment. We would bring lawn chairs. We would bring decks of cards. We would bring other things to occupy ourselves with. And then a few minutes before the line was due to go in, we would put those things back in the trunks of our cars and, and then go in and see the movie. I'm Ian Duckett, and I first saw Star Wars when I was 12 years old. We tried to see it at a movie theater, but we were unable to because it was just sold out. It was constantly sold out. So my father in his wisdom packed us all up into his Grand Prix and took us to the Mission Bay drive-in I imagine it was kind of torturous for my parents because we, the kids, we were just amped. We were so excited. I'm Kevin Ring. I was 13 years old when I saw Star Wars for the first time at the Valley Circle Theater on opening day, May 25th, 1977. We'd never seen a line for a movie, let alone one that wrapped all the way around the building. People knew how to react instinctively it kind of just touched on this underlying cultural thing that we all had and we all knew but didn't realize until it came out, until we saw these things on the screen and reacted. I think one of the most memorable aspects of it was the energy of the audience. When Darth Vader appeared out of the steam and smoke from the blasting open that, that door, You had this character that was all in black, wearing a helmet that was reminiscent of a World War II German helmet. You figured he was bad and everybody was booing and hissing. Boo, you know, and, the, and, the, and that was just like, whoa, I'm not the only one that wants to make noise at this. That kind of set the tone for the whole rest of the film. It was awesome. It was a communal experience for those 800 or however many people in that theater. It was transformative, it really was. I don't think I'd been in a movie where people cheered like that for things. It was just an absolutely different experience and it changed everything. I remember the first time they showed the Millennium Falcon going in hyperspace and the crowd was hooting, hollering, go, whoa, wow, you know. Of all the places I've watched a movie, the audience participation has never exceeded than that in India. People talk to the screen, people, you know, cheer on, they scream. It's, it's a whole other level of engagement. Come on, buddy, we're not out of this yet. And we were so excited. We were just jumping up and down, and every time a TIE fighter flew past or Obi-Wan chops the guy's arm off, it was cheering and jumping up and down. It was so wonderful. I wanted to see it again because I wanted to see the, the, the spaceships flying and I wanted to see the, the lightsaber battles and I definitely wanted to see the Death Star. You may fire when ready. It was commonplace for British audiences to sit quietly, but I do remember when the Death Star blew up that everybody cheered because I think everybody had been so invested in this classic fable that looked unlike anything anyone had ever seen before 
people had got gone on that journey and then when it blew up everybody cheered i do remember that and that battle sequence was really cool too yeah, you just like you know on the edge of your seat is he gonna make it are they gonna make it oh no watch out <laughs> you know Still to this day, see, I, I mean, how many years later and I can still be all enthusiastic about it because I still remember how cool that was. I still remember seeing it four times in one day and collecting every filmmaking magazine talking about how the special effects were done. I was also a card-carrying member of the fan club and still have the Bantha Tracks newsletters. I need to take one last break, and then I'll be back with my interview with Brian Volk Weiss, creator of Icons on Earth Star Wars. And to take us into the break, here's the trailer for the docuseries. A long time ago, in a studio far, far away, a culture-defining franchise was born. Nobody knew what we were doing. Now, the real story of Star Wars from the people who were there. This is never going to work. Fix it in post. This scene is shot into my foot. And for the first time ever, an exclusive interview with Marsha Lucas. I used to go in the editing room and say, who's dying today? Icons Unearth Star Wars. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Welcome back. Icons Unearthed Star Wars arrives on the heels of Paramount's The Offer, a drama about the making of Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. And it debuted just before Disney's Light and Magic, a docuseries about Lucas's industrial light and magic effects house. It's a perfect trilogy in many ways. Coppola and Lucas were friends and were part of the American New Wave of the 1970s. Coppola served as producer on Lucas's THX 1138 and American Graffiti. Coppola was the first of that generation of filmmakers to get a shot at a big Hollywood studio film with The Godfather. The limited series The Offer reveals how difficult it was to get the film made and how the studio wanted to fire Coppola as well as his chosen actors of Marlon Brando and Al Pacino. If you watch that show, Leading into Icons Unearthed, then it'll place you in the right historical context for what these young filmmakers were facing as they tried to work in the Hollywood film industry that they were also rebelling against. Movies were changing in the 1970s, and filmmakers like Coppola, Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, and Brian De Palma were catalysts for those changes. 
Both the offer and icons unearthed remind us that the filmmakers we see as established masters now were concerned that they might be fired off the films they were creating. And they were working under enormous pressure to stay on budget and on schedule even when everything was in chaos. And then, coming out of Icons on Earth, audiences will be able to check out the show Light and Magic, which debuted July 27th on Disney+. That show focuses exclusively on Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic, the company he created to do the special effects on the first Star Wars film. Here's the trailer. Visual effects create the magic that makes people want to go to the movies. Movies are special effects. We start with an empty frame. Anything is possible. As audiences see through the illusion, the bar just raises. How do we do this now? How do we make this look great? I leave it to the genius of the ILM. It's right there in the name Industrial Light and Magic. The history of ILM goes way back. When I was writing Star Wars, there were no special effects houses in the world. So how are we going to do the effects? I realized that I was going to have to start a company. We didn't really know what we were doing. We were not movie people. George wanted a bunch of guys who didn't know what was impossible. We were departing from convention. We had to build equipment from scratch. This was a long shot. We make it look like a professional movie instead of a bunch of kids having fun. We realized nothing is impossible. There was just something here about the people. Suddenly, everybody wants to come to ILM. We were trying to do things that have never been done before. Oh, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. They're pushing technology forward. There's so many innovations that ILM made. Digital editing, computer graphics. We developed Pixar to be a cartoon company. One thing led to another. It turned into Photoshop. Now you could manipulate images. Visual effects would never be the same again. I remember that incredible feeling when all you've got is an idea. It was so exciting. I want to work with people that inspire me. That is the spirit of ILM. It goes back to that original group that were unpretentious, brilliant people. That was our family. We enjoyed each other's company. Yes, we water-slided. Yes, we were immature. But nobody worked harder. We were the Rebel Alliance. We get a glimpse of how Industrial Light and Magic, or ILM, started in Icons Unearthed. But since Light and Magic is produced by Disney and Lucasfilm, the show obviously has access to more materials and to Lucas himself. It's a fabulous show. Seeing what these people were able to create is just inspiring. Icons Unearthed is produced and directed by Brian Volk Weiss, who also created the shows The Toys That Made Us and The Movies That Made Us. All three delightfully tap into our geeky obsession with pop culture. Icons on Earth will spend six hours exploring the Star Wars films from episode one to six. The first two hours of the series look to the origin of the franchise, the film that is now known as A New Hope. Although the film turned out to be a financial blockbuster, Lucas was rejected by two studios before 20th Century Fox finally greenlit it. And even though Fox's Alan Ladd Jr. approved it, he had no idea what Lucas's space opera was really about. I began my interview with Brian Volk Weiss by asking what made him decide to tackle Star Wars right now. If anybody who knows me were to think about your question, I think the answer would be 
why did you wait so long to do Star Wars? Star Wars is the reason that I'm in show business. I would be a, probably a dentist or a lawyer in Queens if it wasn't for Star Wars. We started with toys, then we went on to movies, then we graduated to Star Trek. You know, we had a show come out last year called The Center Seat on History Channel. And I felt like we were finally ready to tackle uh, Tied with Star Trek. Um, the most important franchise of my life. And was there anything in particular that kind of jump-started this idea? Was there something that you uncovered or found access to that was kind of the thing that said, yeah, now is exactly the time to do it? No, there really wasn't. I mean, I've wanted to do this my whole life. It was just a matter of when was the right time. It just all fell into place. We got our deal done with Vice. They were as excited about Star Wars as I am. And the timing was right. I think subconsciously I knew not to start with Star Wars because, you know, we had a lot to learn. You know, we learned a lot on Toys That Made Us, which helped us with movies that made us. Uh, and, you know, we do another show similar to this style called Behind the Attraction on Disney+. Plus. And we needed all of this experience and knowledge to be ready to do Star Wars. Now, as someone who was a teenager when Star Wars came out and was interested in going into filmmaking, one of the people I looked up to was Marsha Lucas because I wanted to be a film editor. She is a great get that you have on this show. How hard was that to track her down and get her to come on the show to talk about this? Um, it was extremely hard. But to be honest with you, it's almost always hard for everybody. It's the strangest process of making series like this because like, I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. In the Aliens episode of Movies That Made Us, we got Sigourney Weaver. We went to her agent, we went to her manager, we went to her publicist, everybody said no. And then one of our producers his best friend, his father died, and his father was very good friends with Sigourney. And our producer's friend at his own father's funeral asked Sigourney Weaver to be in our show. So that's how we got Sigourney Weaver. But more interesting, in my opinion, than that, after her interview, she looks at me and goes, um, Hey, uh, who else are you, you know? Oh, she goes, did you talk to Gail Ann Hurd? And I said, no, she is not returning our emails. And Sigourney was like, what? Hold on a second. And literally called Gail. I'm, I'm watching her on Zoom, you know, because we filmed her in New York. And she literally called Gail Ann Hurd right in front of me. I heard the entire conversation. And then we were interviewing Gail Ann Hurd two weeks later. So... As, so that's a good story to explain to you the randomness of booking a series like this. In Marsha's case, same thing. We went through all the proper channels, nobody responded to us. And then an interview we did asked us who we were trying to get. The first thing I said was Marsha. And he was like, well, who are you talking to? And I mentioned the people we were calling and emailing. He goes, no, no, no you gotta go through her assistant. So he gave us her name and number that we didn't have. We didn't even know the, who the assistant was or anything. So 
after a couple of weeks of going back and forth, she said yes. And I immediately canceled my New York flight, booked a flight to Hawaii and flew to Hawaii. Because with someone like her, you don't wait nine days. Anything could happen. By the way, not to mention COVID. I mean, COVID has been a major pain in the butt for booking interviews. So I literally flew to Hawaii same day, interviewed her the next day, six hours in her house, mind-blowing interview. And that's how it happened. And it's her first on-camera interview ever. Lucas was ready to audition his still unfinished opus in front of trusted friends who just happened to be the luminaries of American cinema. We had a screening room in the back of our house and we watched it in the house to see how things were playing out and how they were working. I remember Brian De Palma coming out and saying in his loud bulky voice, George, you gotta get rid of that force thing. That doesn't work at all. What is that? Out of all the things you discussed, was there anything that stood out to you that you were surprised by or that you were just fascinated to find out? I mean, I was just so blown away by what she said. There's a lot of stuff she told us about Star Wars, the movie that was mind blowing. And there was a lot of stuff about George Lucas as a human being that was mind blowing. So to give you two of my favorite examples, one, they were so behind schedule and pretty over budget. Fox was putting a lot of pressure on George to not film the ending attack on the Death Star. So Fox actually wanted the movie to end with them leaving the Death Star, having rescued Princess Leia. Here they come. And no final battle. So I didn't know that. I had never heard that before. And, you know, we were able to confirm it with, uh, you know, luckily we got two of the three editors. So that was mind blowing. Cause can you imagine Star Wars ending with them rescuing Princess Leia and shooting down four TIE fighters? That's probably not the kind of ending that gets people to watch the movie a hundred times. That's it, we did it! We did it! <laughs> Help, I think I'm melting. This is all your fault. And then I've read every book and seen every documentary, probably 99% of that have been made about Star Wars and George Lucas. It never was clear how important George Lucas's father's mantra of own your own company, own your own company. Oh, you know, his father owned a stationery store or a couple stationery stores in Modesto, California. And he just drilled into George from an early age. And they had a complicated relationship the way a lot of fathers and sons do. And for all the complicatedness, I mean, George took that to heart. Own your own company. And if there's anything I've tried to do with this particular series is I feel like there's a lot of things in life that are insane when they happen. But then when they work, everybody forgets how insane they were. And the fact that George Lucas barely survives physically making A New Hope, and then instead of just taking Fox's money and making Empire Strikes Back like everybody else has over the last hundred years, he took out a bank loan, mortgaged his house, mortgaged everything he owned so that he could own Empire Strikes Back. And that was a complete disaster. It's the most difficult shoot of anything ever Star Wars. He survives again, and then he does the exact same thing with Return of the Jedi. 
but that time it was 30 million and he didn't even really have to take out a loan. He just used his own cash. So what I like to always look at is like, well, James Cameron had all the money from Titanic. Why didn't he self-finance Avatar? Spielberg can do whatever he wants. He's got billions in the bank. And you could argue he founded DreamWorks, he founded Amblin, but he wasn't taking out bank loans. He wasn't writing $30 million checks. And by the way, by the time Phantom Menace came around, George was writing $100 million checks. I mean, what this guy has done is made the most expensive art house films ever made. And I don't think he gets enough credit. 110 years of Hollywood? Nobody, the closest person I can think of to George Lucas is Tyler Perry. And Tyler Perry ain't spending $100 million to make his own movie. And who are some of the other people that you got for this documentary that you were pretty excited about to speak with? Oh my God. I mean, Anthony Daniels, Howard Kazanjian. I mean, obviously we talked about Marsha, John Dykstra, Phil Tippett, Ken Ralston, Richard Edlund, Billy D. Williams. Oh my God. I'd never even seen him before. I mean, to shake his hand, take a picture with him. It was just nuts. You know, she is such a tiny part, but Carolyn Blackston, who played Mon Mothma, one of my favorite interviews, you know, we've ever done. I mean, we got Rick Baker. Rick Baker never does interviews. It was unbelievable. And, you know, to be honest with you, going back to your first question, why did we wait to do Star Wars? And like I said, we didn't really wait, but this series was so much more efficiently made. By the way, between our first day of shooting and when it premieres, less than five months and the only way we could have done that is we already knew everybody so like we could text phil tippett we could text ken ralston or john dykstra and instead of having to do all this kind of nonsense talking to agents and managers or whatever we just went to them directly and we're interviewing them one or two weeks later well as much as i like the interviews with some of the you know on-screen actors those effects guys were just amazing. And to get some of their stories about the behind the scenes process and the creative process. And I think what was really amazing too is the solutions that they came up with for getting stuff on the screen. I mean, that stuff is just wonderful. There, there is a shot in A New Hope. All wings report in. Red 10 standing by. Red 7 standing by. Red 3 standing by. Red 6 standing by. Red 9 standing by. Red 2 standing by. Red 11 standing by. Red 5 standing by. That I had seen conservatively 300 times. And it's such a basic, and this is again, I feel like this story I'm about to tell is like the microcosm of our series. It's a reasonably simple shot that you wouldn't question in that the X-Wings are coming towards the Death Star. This is it, boys. And making their attack on the trench. Starting for the target shaft now. We're in position. And again, it's a kind of reasonably simple shot. You have the X-Wings banking left and going into the trench. We interviewed Dykstra. We interviewed uh, we interviewed this guy named Gus Lopez, who actually owns the models and the matte paintings. 
It is the most mind-blowing special effect in the entire movie because they're basically cutting from a matte painting to a model seamlessly. I mean, literally even knowing where the cut is and they hide it with a laser blast, you can't even tell what they're doing. And this is a scene I have seen at least 300 times and never noticed that. And that's the kind of stuff we're trying to do with our show. We'll have to destroy them ship to ship, get the crews to their fighters. And what was your research process like? If you put this together in five months, uh, how did you like dig up a lot of these archival images, photos, clips, things like that? Well, two answers to your question. If we're talking about research, then I could tell you with barely any exaggeration, we may have shot the show in five months, but I personally have spent uh, at least 40 years researching this movie. For example, my bachelor party was in Tunisia and my friends and I did a 2000 mile uh, circle going to all the locations from the movie. So this year, that was 10 years ago this month, this year when we hired a crew in Tunisia to go film what we wanted, I had all my notes from my bachelor party and I even had pictures and I even had videos that I had shot. And we sent all of that to the crew and then they basically with much better cameras than what I had back then, they replicated what we I had already done on my bachelor party. So. The research had been going on forever. But the other answer to your question is, because since Toys That Made Us, we have basically been in production on shows like this nonstop for five years, we just know what to do. Like we have a system, we, we work with the same people over and over again. I would say at least 30% of the people working on this show have been working with us since Toys That Made Us. We can just go fast because we have a shorthand and we've already been through the learning curves. And the plan for this series is, because I only saw the first episode, uh, the plan for the series is to explore all of the Star Wars films, correct? The first six. The first two episodes are about A New Hope and the last episode is about uh, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Because those movies were made almost simultaneously, for lack of a better term. That's a slight exaggeration. But every episode other than A New Hope is just about the making of a movie. But with A New Hope, you have to explain who's George Lucas, who's Marsha Lucas, what is Fox, what is Kenner. So we had to do all this work setting up the story. There was no way we could do that in one hour. And you don't actually interview George Lucas in the show, do you? No, we reached out to his people as always, but understandably he turned us down. Well, actually, no, he didn't turn us down. We just never heard back. But is Lucasfilm supportive of it, of the series in the sense of allowing for clips and access to things like that? Our model, we don't work with the rights holders. So we use fair use law and we buy as many photographs and video. You would be shocked what you can buy. In Star Wars in particular, because nobody knew A New Hope would become A New Hope, you can buy pictures that the photographer owned and Lucasfilm didn't own. So we had a lot of uh, lucky breaks on this one, but no, we are 100% independent. All of our docs, including movies that made us and toys that made us, we always are independent. And 
By the way, almost always we get kudos from the rights holder after the fact, because, you know, we basically make love letters to the shows and the movies. So we're making from their point of view, you know, I'll be honest with you, we got a lot of information for this show about Star Wars that we didn't use because we will put things in our documentaries that are dark, don't get me wrong. Like we're not just doing like rainbows and Skittles or whatever, but I don't want to put anything in that's dark for the sake of dark. I don't want to be punching down. So we make these kind of light, fun series that yes, tell about the ups and downs, but Lucasfilm doesn't have to worry about us just being mean or just, you know, being anti-Star Wars. I mean, this is a love letter to Star Wars. You mentioned that having this time to work on these other shows before you got to this one was beneficial for you. But do you also think that the perspective you have now, looking back decades before at the making of this iconic film, which when it came out, no one knew what it was going to be. Do you think that time that distance also gives you like a different perspective on it and an ability to to see things that now make sense in a different way or give it a different context absolutely 100 percent, yes i mean every listen every year that goes by it just gives you more and more context like i was born in 76 so like i have no memory of the vietnam war so i've known because i've read the books that the Vietnam War was a major influence on George when he wrote the scripts. But then in 2001, the first real war of my lifetime began. And that, just that gives Star Wars more context. So yeah, every, every year that goes by, the context is improved. And do you remember the first time you saw Star Wars and the impact it had on you? It's funny, I don't remember seeing the movie. I actually have no memory of seeing Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back. I, I don't remember this, but my mom always told the story that after we saw the movie, I was basically anybody who would ever ask me, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always said, you know, I want to join the rebellion and, uh, you know, fight the empire. And that kind of freaked out my mom. So my mom bought me a book for five-year-olds that showed the Death Star was not the size of the moon. It was a model that was eight feet wide. It showed a picture of Anthony Daniels with his helmet off or his mask off. Like, And from the moment I saw that book, and I still have the book, from the moment I saw that book, I knew this is what I wanted to do for a living. Well, thank you very much for talking about Icons Unearthed. Thank you. Thank you. Very kind uh, to talk to you. And uh, thanks for, for just caring about what we're doing. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. I hope you've enjoyed revisiting Star Wars and celebrating the rebel spirit of the people who created it. And remember to check out Cinema Junkie's companion videos from the Geeky Gourmet, because I'll show you how to make some food themed to my podcast. Comic-Con's been in the way, but I will have a new season of videos up, beginning with some bonkers-ass-themed cookies, as well as Star Wars treats. You can find the videos and more podcasts at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. And please, 
Share the podcast with a friend because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Cinebeth, or you can follow the Cinema Junkie page on Facebook. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.